Obviously, we cannot uh, receive tithes and offerings in person, as was sent out uh, via the email and on Facebook and on our website. Uh, we encourage you to continue the regular weekly practice of giving. You can do that uh, via the uh, snail mail, sending in tithes and offerings. We do have a locked box now, uh, so that will be uh, secure. You can bring those to the church office, if you like, during regular office hours. Or, as you see on our website, there is a give uh, click button right up at the top. I feel like a tele-evangelist asking for money. Uh, but there are various ways that we can still give, uh, even though uh, we are not here in person this morning. Our offerings go for our general budget and for Providence Christian College. As we prepare to hear the word of God uh, this morning, I would like to read the text of number 36 uh, in our Psalter hymnal. Number 36 is a setting of Psalm 22, a psalm that speaks about uh, God calling his own from all of the earth. Number 36 from the Psalter hymnal. The ends of all the earth shall hear and turn unto the Lord in fear. All kindreds of the earth shall own and worship him as God alone. Both rich and poor, both bond and free, shall worship him on bended knee, and children's children shall proclaim the glorious honor of his name. The Lord's unfailing righteousness, all generations shall confess. From age to age shall men be taught what wondrous works the Lord has wrought. All earth to him her homage brings, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. This morning, the Word of God comes to us from 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll be reading just the first seven verses of this chapter. 1 Timothy 2, beginning at verse 1, what we hear now is God's word. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, 
which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Here we end the reading of God's holy word. I am also going to read from the back of our Psalter hymnal, from page 99 in the back section. 99, this is the second head of doctrine, which is entitled, The Death of Christ and the Redemption of Men Thereby. And this morning I'm going to read just Articles 3 and 5 and 8. Article 3 of the second head of doctrine. The death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sin and is of infinite worth and value, abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. Article 5. Moreover, the promise of the gospel is that whosoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have eternal life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously and without distinction to whom God, out of his good pleasure, sends the gospel. And then from Article 8. For this was the sovereign counsel and most gracious will and purpose of God the Father, that the quickening and saving efficacy of the most precious death of his Son should extend to all the elect, for bestowing upon them alone the gift of justifying faith, thereby to bring them infallibly to salvation. That is, it was the will of God that Christ, by the blood of the cross, whereby he confirmed the new covenant, should effectively redeem out of every people tribe, nation, and language, all those, and those only, who were from eternity chosen to salvation and given to him by the Father, that he should confer upon them faith, which together with all the other saving gifts of the Holy Spirit, he purchased for them by his death, should purge them from all sin, both original and actual, whether committed before or after believing, And having faithfully preserved them even to the end, shall at last bring them free from every spot and blemish to the enjoyment of glory in his own presence forever. We continue this morning our study of the doctrines of grace. These beautiful doctrines given to us in the Word of God that help us understand the glory of salvation. We spent quite some time talking about God's unconditional election, that God chooses whom He will save. Uh, Last week, we started talking about the nature of that atonement, how He will save. Remember atonement, children? Atonement being made at one with God. We were separated from God, and through Jesus Christ, we are made at one by his death. 
we talked last week that the atonement uh, is limited and that everyone limits the atonement in some way. Either we limit the power of the atonement or we limit the scope of the atonement. We in no way limit the power of Christ's atonement. It was sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world. Christ would not have to suffer one bit more to save one more sinner. There is no deficiency in the power of the atonement. But there is a limit in the scope. While the atonement is sufficient for the whole world, it is efficient for the elect only. We confess Christ died for his own. Remember the picture we talked about last week, children? The picture of the bridge. Either a bridge that is wide enough to hold each and every person in the entire world, but that bridge only goes part way, not able to save. Or a bridge that is wide enough to hold each and every one of the elect. And that bridge goes all the way from man to God. Christ came to accomplish salvation. He did not come to make salvation possible. He did not come to make an offer of salvation. But he came to perfectly accomplish that work which we were unable to do. I mentioned last week, this is a, this is a controversial doctrine. It is a doctrine that makes a so-called a four-point Calvinists. Uh, some people just cannot abide the idea of limited atonement because they say there are texts in Scripture that talk about Christ dying for the world, Christ dying for all. How can you say that there's any limit in the atonement? Our text this morning. From verse 6, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Verse 4, God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. How can you say that there is any limit in the atonement? The text is clear. Christ died for all. He's a ransom for all. What do we do? <laughs> with texts like this. What do we do with John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he sent his Son. How do we understand the world, the texts? How do we understand the all texts? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And there are really two things I, I want to encourage you uh, about this morning. The first is that the doctrine of limited atonement, or if you prefer, particular redemption, is true, but perhaps the second and more important, the doctrine is biblical. This is not something simply found in the back of the Blue Psalter hymnal. This is not a Calvinistic doctrine. This is not a Protestant doctrine. 
This is a biblical doctrine, the truth of particular redemption, the truth of limited atonement is taught throughout the scriptures. We look at limited atonement and the world. I think you had the outline that was sent out via email, and so you see the first point of that outline is the reformed hermeneutic. Now, kids, hermeneutic is a really big word. It's not a word that we use uh, in everyday conversation. What is, what is hermeneutic? Hermeneutic is simply how do we read the Bible? That's what hermeneutic means. It's how do we read the Bible? Because that's going to be fundamental to understanding the world texts and the all texts. And while this is incredibly obvious, we read the Bible as the Word of God. We read the Bible not simply as the words of man, <clears throat> not simply good advice from sages long ago. We read the Bible as the Word of God written. We describe this Word of God as inspired. It comes from God Himself. We describe this Word of God as infallible and inerrant. It does not lead astray, nor can it lead astray. It is God's Word. Now, to be sure, God used human writers with different personalities, with different writing styles, but he is the ultimate author of Scripture. The Reformed hermeneutic begins with the confession, this is the Word of God we are dealing with. And because God cannot contradict himself, his Word cannot contradict itself. God's Word is his meaningful self-revelation. God cannot and does not say yes and no at the same time in the same way. There are not Calvinist texts and Arminian texts. We don't say, well, Paul says this, but Peter says this over here, and they disagree with each other. We don't say, Moses teaches this, but Jesus teaches this. No, the Word of God is of one piece. It is without error. It is without contradiction. We have to remind ourselves that while the Bible is infallible, we are fallible. We have fallen sinful minds. We cannot understand everything perfectly. So if there is ever an apparent contradiction in Scripture. It is only apparent. The Bible speaks with one voice. It is without contradiction. If we cannot understand how two texts go together, we do not say there's a problem with the Word. But there is a problem with our limited understanding of the Word. We sometimes use the phrase, 
the analogy of Scripture. Meaning, the Bible is its own best interpreter. The Bible is its own best interpreter. We read the Scriptures in light of other Scriptures. And they will fit together perfectly. We read the more difficult text in light of the clearer text, not the other way around. We are called to read the Word of God in its context. And so you know that, that, that words, while they have a certain semantic range, are found in the context of sentences. Sentences are found in verses. Verses are found in chapters. Chapters are found in books. Books find themselves either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. We look at the text in its context to understand its meaning. We do not engage in pulling a text out of its context, making it say whatever we want. That is what we call illegitimate proof texting. Now we have to be clear on that. There's nothing wrong with proof texting. Where else are we going to get the truth from? It's going to come from the text of the Word of God. Illegitimate proof texting is when we take a text out of its context and make it say something it was not intended to say or something which contradicts something else in Scripture. We are called to look at the Scriptures in light of what they say, the truth that they give. With that reformed hermeneutic, it is the Word of God, it is without contradiction, and we use the analogy of Scripture. Scripture is its own best interpreter. How do we understand the world texts in the Bible? Well, I think the first thing we have to recognize is that world is used in a variety of ways in Scripture. Sometimes we use the word world to mean, to mean uh, the universe, the cosmos. God created the world, everything we see around us. That's one way we use the word world in Scripture. Sometimes we use the word world to refer to history or time. Jesus came into the world. He came in a particular time. He entered our history. We use the word world that way. Sometimes we use the word world to mean people in general. People in general. In John 12, uh, verse 19, the Pharisees are concerned because people are following Jesus, and they say this, Look, the world has gone after him. Now, did the Pharisees mean absolutely each and every person in the world? No, no, people in general are following him. The world has gone after him. Sometimes we use the word world to mean place in general. Romans 1, verse 8, Paul says, Your faith is being proclaimed in all the world. 
He writes the Romans, your faith is being proclaimed in all the world. Now, did Paul mean in North America, in South America, in Antarctica, in Africa? No, he means it's being, it's being proclaimed all over the place. All over the place in general, people are hearing about your faith. We saw last week, sometimes world is used in contrast to the church. In Jesus' prayer in John 17, he says, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Not the world, but the church. World has a wide semantic range. World has a wide variety of meanings. And so we don't say in every place, world must mean each and every person who lives. Think about, think about John chapter 1. When John sees Jesus, he says, John chapter 1 verse 29, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Can that mean each and every person? In light of what we studied earlier and the doctrine of election and reprobation, the Bible teaches that some are chosen and some are not. Some are saved and some are not. So John cannot mean the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of absolutely each and every person in the world. That would be a contradiction with what we know about election and reprobation. It cannot mean every single person, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of every single person. What about, what about John 3? Probably the first text uh, your Arminian friends will turn to when we talk about limited atonement, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. Well, there it is. It's right there. What more could you want? Right in the Bible. What does John 3.16 teach? We're going to sort of back our way into this text. It says, Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Who is it that shall not perish? The one who believes. The one who believes in him is the one that shall not perish but have eternal life. And where, where do those who believe come from? They come from out of the world. And so rather than this text teaching a universal atonement, God so loved the world, it actually teaches particular atonement. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him out of that world should not perish but have eternal life. 
this text teaches particular redemption. This text teaches limited atonement. Those who believe from out of the world should not perish. We read this morning from uh, 1 John, the epistle of 1 John, and we read there that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The sins of the whole world. There it is again. Jesus is described as a propitiation. We talked about this last time a little bit. What is a propitiation? A propitiation is a sacrifice that turns aside the wrath of God. A propitiation turns aside the wrath of God. Jesus is the propitiation not only for our our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world, turning aside God's wrath. Now, comparing Scripture with Scripture, speaking of the turning aside of God's wrath, we read from John 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever does not believe, the wrath remains on him. Taking these two texts together, the first John text cannot mean he is a propitiation for each and every person taking away God's wrath because John says in his gospel, the wrath of God remains. There are no contradictions. But the word of God speaks with one voice. There is a limit to the nature of the atonement, particular redemption. And perhaps say, okay, well, that's fine, that's fine. World might have a range of meaning. We've seen that. But everybody knows all means all. All means all. Kids, when your mom says to you, I want you to pick up all your toys, does she mean some of your toys? No, no. All means all. You want to pick up all your toys to be obedient to mom. Does all mean all? I would suggest all in Scripture has at least two meanings. All can mean all without exception, meaning absolutely each and every one. From Romans chapter 3, verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. All without exception. Each and every one of us left to our own fallen nature, turning aside from the path of God. All without exception. All have turned aside. That's one meaning. 
The other meaning is all without distinction. Not all without exception, all without distinction. From Mark chapter 1, verse 5, speaks of John the Baptist, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Does Mark mean to tell us that every single person in Judea and every single person in Jerusalem, all without exception, were going out and confessing their sins and being baptized? No. He is saying all without distinction. All kinds of people were going out. Old people were going out. Young people were going out. Boys were going out. Girls were going out. All kinds of people. All without distinction were confessing their sins and being baptized. What about our text this morning? This all text from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 4, God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Is this all without exception or all without distinction? We read this text in its own context. Verse 1, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, same phrase, for kings and for all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. What is, what is Timothy teaching? What's Paul teaching? He is teaching that our prayers supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving, should be made for all kinds of people. Not just for those who are in our own social class, but even for the kings, even for the rulers. I want prayer made for all people, for all kinds of people. He doesn't mean absolutely each and every person in the whole world, all without exception. He means all without distinction. Include the rulers in your prayers. I want prayers, thanksgivings, intercessions made for all people, and in that very same context, our Savior who desires all people to be saved. It is the same phrase. It is all without distinction. God desires all kinds of people, not just a particular class, not just the high and mighty, but all kinds to come to the saving knowledge of Him. He goes on, for there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all. He gave himself a ransom for all. Now, is that all without exception or all without distinction? We compare this text with Mark 10, verse 45, which says Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. There can be no contradiction. And there is no contradiction 
When we recognize this all, the ransom for all, isn't all without distinction. He gave himself a ransom for all kinds of people, not each and every person in the entire world. There are many more texts we could look at together, but they will say this same glorious truth, that God has a particular people chosen from before eternity who belong to him. And Paul says because of that, verse 7, because of that, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Because there is this particular people, because the gospel goes to all the world, Paul's appointed to bring the gospel to all the world without distinction. He doesn't say, I'm only going to go to this particular type of people, but I'm going to preach to all people. This is our confession in Article 8. We read there, It was the will of God that Christ, by the blood of the cross, whereby he confirmed the new covenant, should effectively redeem out of every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and those only who were from eternity chosen to salvation and given to him by the Father. From every people and language and tribe and nation, all kinds of people, all kinds called to confess, all kinds called to believe. And that's the gospel call again today. Don't think I'm not the right type of person to receive the gospel. I'm not in the right class to receive the gospel. The gospel is for all, without distinction. God calls you today to put your hope and your faith and your trust in Him, regardless of your status or your class. It is a gospel without distinction that comes to all that comes to the world and for each and every one that places their faith alone in Jesus Christ, you can be assured of God's promise of salvation. He has his people. He has chosen his people. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, that's what gives us an encouragement in evangelism. It is a gospel that is for all without distinction to be shared by all. We can feel free to share the gospel with everyone. We don't know who's elect. We don't know who's not elect. So we preach the gospel indiscriminately. I love how our confession describes this in Article 5 of the second head. Moreover, the promise of the gospel is that whosoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. This promise together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously and without distinction to whom God, out of his good pleasure, sends the gospel. We can bring the gospel without distinction because God has his own out there and each and every one of his own will embrace that truth will embrace Jesus Christ and will know the assurance of salvation. That's our assurance. Because God has chosen his own, 
Because He knows us. Because He has brought us to embrace Jesus Christ and confess our sins. We can be sure, assured that the limit of the atonement doesn't say, well, maybe we're outside. No, the limit of the atonement reminds us God has His own. And Christ has perfectly done everything necessary to save each and every one of His own. Limited atonement written throughout Scripture. There are not Calvinist texts. There are not Arminian texts. We understand the Bible in its own context, the all texts, the world texts, in light of all of Scripture. We don't pull them out, wrest them from the context. They look, it says, it's the world, it's all. Now we thank God we have the beauty of the fullness of His Word to be reminded He is a God who has chosen His own, who has redeemed his own, and will bless each and every one of his own. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord our God, your word is great, it is glorious, it is perfect in everything it teaches. We confess our imperfection. It is so easy for us to be led astray, to take one text out of context, or, or to, to, uh, to say it conflicts with another text. Help us to see your word in its fullness, in its beauty, and to be, to be encouraged that you have made a particular atonement, a particular redemption for all of your own. Help us, O oh God, to embrace that glorious truth, to be encouraged by that truth, and to share that truth with those around us, that your word might go out to all without distinction to bring glory and praise to you. Hear our prayer, O God, for Jesus' sake. Amen. As we